This morning we're going to be uh, back in Matthew chapter 5, opening up the earliest words in a sermon that's become known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's a sermon that we're going to unpack really, really slowly together over the next really almost seven months uh, so that we make sure we get a good sense of what's there, that we understand why it's there, what Jesus meant by it, and how, what it would look like for us to submit ourselves to it. And we started where Jesus did, with a section that's known as the Beatitudes. It's a section of statements, short, pithy, poetic, beautiful statements, in which Jesus is giving us a profile of, king, of, of what it looks like to be in his kingdom. Jesus is breaking down what citizens of the kingdom he came to build look like. If you want to know if you're in it, if you want to know if you want to be in it, look to the Beatitudes and you'll get a better sense of it. But what we're going to see this morning is what we saw last week and what we're going to see next week and the week after and the week after. The the profile Jesus is building here is not one we would have expected. It's not one his hearers would have expected. It's never really fit well in any culture that's ever heard it. Tomorrow the, uh, the Iowa caucuses will be held, right? At least half of you guys probably following loosely uh, all those developments. I, I, this is about the time of year where I start to take a, a sort of sporting interest in it because football season is wound down and you know the, the, the gap that that leaves in my life will now be filled by a little, at least a casual interest in the back and forth that, that leads up to our, our presidential election. And in the very, very slight attention that I've paid so far, I've heard the same things that we always hear every time there's, a, there's, there's an election, right? Candidates on both sides um, are always profiling the American citizens that they believe they will best represent, hoping that the profile they give will sound enough like you that you'll want to vote for them. At least sound enough like what you want yourself to be. Whether, whether a candidate is promising to uh, move America back, or take America forward, or maybe to retreat in order to move forward, uh, all the candidates have a way of celebrating America, Right? especially the Americans whose votes they want. And it makes sense. If you want to, if you want to hold an office in, in any country, you, you really want to believe in that country and in the, in the quality of the people that you'll work for. So I don't think there's anything inauthentic about what they do, but there will be a laundry list of, of qualities that will be celebrated, right? Typically, you'll hear people celebrate uh, the hard work ethic or the ethic of hard work or maybe the... Uh, the the uh, up by your bootstraps, self-reliant frontier ethic that's so deep in our sense of ourselves. Or, or Americans as people of good common sense or civic mindedness or whatever else. I mean, plug and play. They're qualities that, that celebrate something about those people. And it makes sense. When Jesus comes to his profile, though, of citizens of his kingdom, when he's breaking down the sort of values of the, the, the kingdom he's come to build, it's a really different picture. In the last 50 years or so, we tend to think that the key to mental health is self-affirmation, self-acceptance, that the great threat to mental health is low self-esteem. Jesus starts out his profile of what a kingdom citizen looks like by saying that blessed are the poor in spirit, those with an honestly low view of themselves. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
he takes what we often think of as the great threat to mental health and turns it into the first and primary mark of the people who are with him. The next mark, the one we come to this morning in Matthew 5, 4, is just as much of a, of a, of a departure from what we might expect. We're a culture driven by the pursuit of happiness, right? We have a huge economy that's built on the quest for more, more stuff, more sex, more entertainment. And Jesus says, actually, actually, the ones who are blessed, the ones who are really happy, not necessarily as a feeling, but as a condition, as a word pronounced over them, the ones who are really happy are those who mourn. What Jesus says in Matthew 5, 4 is that if you want a good life, then you got to embrace mourning. So what does he mean by mourning? And why is it blessed to mourn? That's what we're going to answer together this morning. Would you please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5? I'm going to read verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is God's word. You can be seated. What does Jesus mean by mourning here? Why is it a blessed thing to mourn? Well, like a couple weeks ago when we, when we started this, this look into the Beatitudes, said then, I'll say it again now, I'll probably say it again several other times before we're done. It really helps to know a little bit about the prophets if you want to understand what Jesus is getting at in his list that profiles people who are in his kingdom. Because he had read them, his whole ministry makes sense as a fulfillment of things that were longed for in the prophets. And the people he was speaking to would have been real familiar with what the prophets had said. And when he uses this term mourning, he's using a term that was loaded. A term that the prophets loved to use. So it's kind of, it's by looking back at them and pulling them into what Jesus is saying that I think we can understand better together what, it, what he means by mourning. What exactly are Christians, are citizens of his kingdom supposed to mourn over if we want to be blessed, if we want to have comfort? I've broken it down for you in a couple different ways. If, if you've got a worship guide, you should be able to follow along with me. It's printed there for you to follow along and take notes if that'd be helpful to you. It starts with what the prophets mostly meant, most commonly meant by mourning when they describe the people of Israel as, or call on the people of Israel to mourn. And that is a mourning over sin. So first thing we need to know about this, what does Jesus mean? Is that, is that Christians mourn over sin. Christians, people who are in his kingdom, they'll mourn first because there's sin in them, there's sin in us. It always starts there for Christians. For those who are, it should always start there for us. For those who are with Jesus, we'll always be more burdened, first burdened by our own sins, more burdened by our own sins than by the sins of the people around us. We won't see sin as somebody else's problem. It'll, we'll see it as, as our problem. The passage that Mitchell read for us earlier this morning, uh, Isaiah 61, talks a lot about the mourners, about their, their mourning being turned into gladness. And that comes in Isaiah's prophecy on the backside of Isaiah basically ripping them to shreds for the way they neglected God and run after other idols and had nothing for him, calling them to mourn over what he's just shown them is true about themselves. He's promising healing to those who get and embrace the message that he's just told them about what's true of them. But let me give you another prophet, 
another example of why, why it is Jesus has, has individuals mourning over their own sin in mind when he says, blessed are those who mourn. This one's from Joel chapter 2, another one of the prophets. It's a really good, succinct statement of something that's pretty common in the prophets of the Old Testament. He says this, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. In other words, be moved by your sin against me. Don't just go through the motions. Don't just, don't just do what, whatever it is people in your culture will do to show that they're upset. And in that culture, it would have been ripping your garments. Don't just go through the motions. I want your heart to mourn over it. Return to the Lord, Joel continued. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Those who are in Jesus' kingdom, they hear this call. They recognize that sin against God is a huge problem, not somebody else's problem, their problem. They're always going to be most burdened by their sin. Those who are in Jesus' kingdom see sin's effect on their lives. They see what it's doing. They feel their bondage to it and they hate it. They feel the weight of guilt when they've done it again and again and again, that thing they can't shake. They see its effect on other people, the way that it hurts them, the way that it lets them down, the way that it causes them fear or makes them sad. Those who are in Christ's kingdom feel their own coldness of heart and they hate it. They cry out to Him to melt their heart, to help them to hunger for Him, to want Him more than they do, to want freedom more than they do. Those who are in His kingdom see their envy of other people's lives and it turns their stomachs. It makes them just feel icky. They don't accept it. They don't go along with it. Same goes when they catch themselves feeling superior to someone. When they catch themselves looking down on someone else for what they've got on or for what they've got in their shopping cart or for how they chose to decorate their house or whatever other way we choose to make ourselves feel better than we are. Christians are sensitive to that. They're supposed to see that. And then they hate it. But most of all, they hate the effect of their sin on God. Those who are with Jesus should recognize that every time we choose to go our own way, to hear His word and reject Him, it's like we're taking a gift that was specially chosen by someone who loves us deeply. A gift that was labored over and planned and designed with knowledge and affection just for us. It's like taking one of those kind of gifts and asking if you could have the receipt too. Because what you'd really like to do is take it back and get something different. Christians recognize that's what their sins say to God. And that God feels about that in a mysterious way. He is affected by that in the way you would be if someone else treated your kindness and love towards you in the way you have treated God. Christians see it and they mourn. There is no peace with God, friends. No peace in life that doesn't start with mourning over your sin. That's why the mourning are blessed. Read Psalm 51. David pierced with recognition over what he had done 
to God first and foremost, not to others. It's recognizing he had sinned against him first, cries out to God as one who has nothing but a plea for mercy from a desperate man. Read that psalm and pray that. If you're like me, what you need to do is read that psalm and pray that you would feel what David feels. Because more often than not, our sins just roll off of our backs. They never penetrate into our hearts in the way that the prophet Joel called us to respond. And only God's Spirit can give us the power to respond to sin in the way that we must if we're to have any hope of claiming Jesus. So friends, if this doesn't sound like your experience, if you don't feel moved very often by what you've done, then the first step is to pray to God that he would help you to mourn. Because only mourning, only through mourning, do we find a path to healing. Christians mourn because there's sin in us. We mourn also because there's sin around us. What did Jesus have in mind when he said, them, blessed are those who mourn? It's first and foremost a mourning over sin, a mourning that starts over sin in us, but that, it doesn't stop there. Christians also look around and they see sins around them and they mourn over it. If we love God and we love other people, we'll never be casual about the sins of others. Psalm 119, verse 136, surely is one of the things Jesus had in his mind when he wrote what he wrote. And we said what he said here in Matthew 5. The psalmist wrote there, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Does that sound like you? Do you ever feel broken over the sins of other people? I've already said this once. I'll say it a lot more. The sermon, the whole Sermon on the Mount is about how Christians should be different from people in the world, people who aren't with Jesus. The sermon is meant to profile this, this kingdom and tell you what's different about this kingdom, where it should stand out. But just because Christians should expect that they're different from people who aren't with Jesus, people who don't want to follow him, it doesn't mean that we don't that we that we that we observe our surroundings like some sort of anthropologist that's just interested in different ways of life. That we that we offer more like detached scientific observations, like we're doing dissertation research of some sort, like we're some sort of naturalist who sit back and say, "It's interesting, isn't it, that the that the uh, the praying mantis devours the head of her mate after copulation? Isn't that interesting?" No, we don't look at the, the brokenness and the sin of people who don't want to follow Jesus and find it interesting. Or we shouldn't. When people around us embrace or celebrate, even celebrate things that God condemns, we aren't, we aren't interested. We mourn. Now, now let me make another caveat. I'm not saying that we put ourselves into a position of judgment over the people who choose to live in a different way than what God has called us to. We are nobody's judge because Christians' mourning always starts with mourning over their own sin. 
we recognize that there is no judgment we could ever pass on anybody else that wouldn't equally apply to us. We don't stand over them as their judge. That's not what I mean. A few years ago, I was at a sporting event where some protesters from the Westboro Baptist crowd were there. Got an up-close-and-personal look at that. You guys probably know about this group. They've gotten a lot of notoriety in the last few years for, for staging big protests at big public events. They're really mad about a lot of things in American culture. Some of the things that they're mad about are things that God condemns. Things that, that God has anger about. But there's no mourning in their picketing, in the signs that they hold up, in the antagonistic remarks they make to the people who are walking by, in the smug looks of self-satisfaction on their faces. When they tell people they're going to hell, they do it with a smirk on their face. And God will judge them for it if they don't repent. And this isn't what we're talking about. But I'm talking to you guys. And I'm talking to myself. And I'm guessing you're more like me. And that what we've got to guard against, that we're so eager to set ourselves apart from that image of the Westboro Baptist crowd and their joyful signage condemning people to an eternity apart from God. We so want to be set apart from that crowd that sometimes we can grow casual about the sin around us. It's true we shouldn't expect people who aren't followers of Jesus to behave like followers of Jesus. In that sense, sin never surprises us. But sin should always move us. We should always mourn over it. Because what we are watching when we watch somebody live life on their terms as if God doesn't exist. What we're watching is them take something beautiful that God made. Something beautiful and effective. Something productive that God made. Their life. We're watching them take it and use what, what was made for God's purposes for their own purposes. It's like watching somebody take an iPhone and try to drive a nail into a board with it. It's just not made for that. And it won't be very good at it. You're not going to have much success. And along the way, you're going to destroy this beautiful and and effective and wonderful thing that was made on purpose for something else. We can't see people doing that and not be affected by it. Christians are those who embrace God's perspective on sin, even the sin around them, and they mourn over it. And friends, here's what that means. Let me get even more specific. Here's what that means. It means that that we have got to expect to sit out celebrations that are going on all around us. Christians have had to do that from the beginning. That's nothing new. Christians from the beginning, from one generation to another, in one way or another, depending on their culture and what they were facing in their time, Christians have often seen destruction and what others have called progress. Being in the world but not of the world means that we've got to be willing to have ourselves seen mourning 
in the midst of the party. When our culture celebrates what God has condemned. One of the, one of the uh, resources I've been using to try to get a handle on the Sermon on the Mount is a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship. Try to keep that book on the resource table back there. I don't think there's one back there now, but keep an eye out for it. We, get, we put it back there as often as we can. A big, big part of that book is a commentary, a verse-by-verse verse through the Sermon on the Mount. When, when Bonhoeffer got to this part of the sermon, Christians who must mourn, he talked about this idea that Christians have always had to mourn things that were being celebrated around them, to sit out the party that other people were enjoying, to be the kind of, uh, to, to, to be the kind of wet blanket that we may be accused of now in our time, in our place. For him, that meant sitting on the sidelines of national socialism, of a time in Germany where everyone was rah-rah over the Reich, where everyone believed that their nation had a bright future, that it would be disloyal not to celebrate anything its government did to bring that future into reality, to celebrate their racial supremacy to others who were living in their, in their nation at the time. It was a heady time when he wrote this, a time when disloyalty was a life and death kind of charge that could be made against you. And Bonhoeffer wrote then, Christians have to be willing to sit on the sidelines of the party and to be written off as antisocial. The image that he used in this section was one that would have been a lot fresher on people's minds then than, than now. The image of, so this is 20 years after the Titanic went down when he was writing this book, he used the image of Christians as those watching a luxury liner full of partiers reveling in the joy of the resources that they've got that put them on that boat and the pleasures that they get to have while they're there dancing and celebrating and laughing and eating and drinking and being merry while the ship is already taking on water and Christians are those who see the ship is taking on water there is destruction at the end of this story we can't just go along with the party as if that isn't happening We can't do that. But that means, that means we've got to be willing to own the label of antisocial. And it means we've got to be prepared. If we want to to be seen as outsiders for the celebrations, we sit out. And if we want to do that in a way that honors Jesus rather than makes ourselves look good, makes ourselves feel better, then what we've got to do is mourn. What we've got to do is sit these celebrations out, not waiting to be proven right. Not waiting to be proven right, but longing to see others come home. We'll have the posture of Jesus who just a little bit later in Matthew's gospel standing on the outside of Jerusalem looking over the whole city calling it a city of destruction for what they had done to destroy the prophets and to abandon God's law. He looked over them and he he described his love for them as that of a mother hen who would gather her chicks under her wings. He longed to gather them in to protect and provide for them. What he wanted most was for them to come home. And if we're to represent his kingdom in a way that's faithful, that honors him and not ourselves, 
then we will mourn over the sins of others, but not as their judges, as those who long to see them come back. Our posture towards them will never be, you'll see. It, it will always be, can't you see? Won't you see? Please, won't you see? Blessed are those who mourn. Who mourn over sin. There's more to this picture of mourning, though, that, that Jesus had in his mind. Christians mourn not just over sin. Christians also mourn over suffering. The prophets were all over this. Prophets never just talked about our problem as a sin problem. It was always sin and suffering. The brokenness, the hardness of the world that's unleashed by our sin. There's not just the willful, chosen rejection of God's love and care. There's also the sorrow that's evident all around us. Christians understand that. They get that the world isn't what it should be. And they feel the pain of the world, of their friends, as their own. They don't have to pretend that things are better than they are. We live in a time and a place where there's a lot of pretending that happens. Especially in the last 50 years or so. We've been so prosperous. There's so many ways that we can pursue the good life. So much devoted to the pursuit of happiness. That culture-wide, we've repressed, suppressed anything that might keep us from that happiness. Any realities that might distract us from our attempt to be happy. Uh, earlier this summer, we, we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes, a really, really bleak book that's all about death and all it le- unleashes into our lives. Uh, back in, during that time, I, I mentioned a book that I really appreciated by a historian named Philip Aries um, on, on how, our ch- how in the West, the attitudes toward death and sorrow have changed over time from a, a deep awareness of those things, because they couldn't deny it, it's happening everywhere, Things like the plague were wiping out tens of thousands of people at a time. To our culture, where it's suppressed, it's dismissed, it's pushed to the margins. Any, any evidence, any acknowledgement that things are not what they ought to be. Aries, Aries explains this banishment of any acknowledgement of sorrow as stemming from our need for happiness. Here's the way he puts it. From, stems from the moral duty and the social obligation to contribute to the collective happiness by avoiding any cause for sadness or boredom, by appearing to be always happy, even if in the depths of despair. See, by showing the least sign of sadness, he says, one sins against happiness, threatens it, and society loses its reason for being. What's it getting at? No, it doesn't feel good to acknowledge that things are not what they should be. To acknowledge the ugliness of life in the world sometimes. It is a downer to what we're trying to enjoy. To our shopping or our entertainment or our parties. And, and you know, so long as it's, it's, it's what's wrong isn't happening directly to me, why should I get myself down about it? When it does happen to me, 
I got to get rid of that noun feeling as quickly as I possibly can. I got to medicate it with a little retail therapy or some other drug inducement, some other way to pretend like things aren't as bad as what they are. There's little room for mourning in our society fully devoted to eating and drinking and being merry. But Christians can't go along with that unspoken agreement. We can't. We never have any reason to deny the truth. We're supposed to be those who agree with God about the state of the world. And we mourn over it. We mourn for people desperate enough to sell their bodies to put food in their mouths or drugs in their veins. We mourn over children who are captured and sold and abused for a profit. We mourn for people who have to fear those meant to protect them because of their ethnicity. We mourn over babies who were killed before having a chance at life. We mourn over the loss of innocence. We mourn over the end of relationships. We mourn the effects of disease, that cancer exists and does what it does. We mourn the brevity of life. We aren't callous. We can't be. We aren't isolated. We aren't ostriches with our heads in the sand. We aren't Pollyannas. Because you know why? Pollyannas don't need Jesus. They don't need to be comforted. And that brings me to the last point. I want to end here. Christians mourn over their sin. Christians mourn over suffering. Christians are those who mourn, according to Jesus. If you want to be with him, you've got to mourn. But we are not saying, Jesus is not saying, that Christians are joyless, morose people, always sure that the sky is falling in. Christians' lives should never be defined by mourning. Christians mourn because mourning is what makes sense when things are the way they are, when we are what we are, when the world is what it is, mourning is what makes sense. But mourning for Christians, if we want to be with him, mourning is never, it's never an end in itself. Mourning is always a pathway. It's always goal-oriented. Mourning is always a means to finding comfort. That's what Jesus says. Just look at how the verse breaks down. Verse 4 of chapter 5. Blessed are those who mourn. Why are they blessed? Why is somebody declared to be in a happy state who is mourning? There's a reason. The reason is that those who mourn, they're the ones who will be comforted. Do you see what Jesus is saying? There's one path and one path only to comfort. That path is mourning. There is no other way. Christians Mourn because it is the unavoidable step to receiving comfort as a gift. To receiving it as a person. Because only those broken by sin and suffering will seek comfort from a savior. From one who came as the great comforter. Mourning is a blessed path. Because it's the only path of Jesus. We don't use Jesus to dismiss mourning. We don't try to shove it under the rug with trite phrases about Jesus. 
That is not what we're talking about. Christians face up to it. They acknowledge it for what it is. But we don't just wallow in it. It isn't all there is. It is what is. It isn't all there is. Christians don't use Jesus to dismiss mourning as an excuse not to mourn. They use mourning as a reason to run after Jesus. You see the difference there? Not Jesus as a reason to pretend like there's no reason to mourn. But mourning as a reason to run to and rest in, to fall on Jesus. I love the way that Walt Langren put this in a book about 25 years ago. He's a pastor and an author uh, who was especially active in the 80s and 90s. He wrote a book called Mourning into Dancing on how grief is the only way to get to Jesus. He wrote this. I love the way he puts this. The Lord has taken the horrible consequences of our rebellion and made them the means of our salvation. He took the horrible consequences of our sin and all that it unleashed in the brokenness of the world. And now he's flipped the script so that all of the horrible things we have done and unleashed and experienced now become the way that we get back to Jesus. Here's the central theme of the book, he says, that the real and dramatic means by which we're turned back to God again is the grief we experience. It is by the pain and through the grief that we go step by step away from self and closer to Christ and back to the Father again. You want a better sense of what this means? Let's think about sin. Talked about Christians as those who mourn over sin. How is this a pathway to Jesus? Because mourning over sin is the starting place for genuine, heartfelt repentance and forgiveness. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, Paul has just been describing how horrible it is to be him. (laughs) About how he wants to do good things, but he just keeps doing things he doesn't want to do. He He struggles to do the good things that he wants to do, and he keeps doing the things that he doesn't want to do, and he's just tormented over the sin that still has a hold on it. And he builds in chapter 7 to this cry. This is verse 24 of chapter 7. Wretched man that I am. Wangren writes about Paul here. This is Paul's cry and it's got to be ours too. We must more than admit it by the mouth. We must suffer. In fact, our essential impotence, our powerlessness, in order to next cry, with Paul, who will free me from this body of death? Before we recognize our wretchedness, our powerlessness, we'll never ask who besides me can help me. Who will set me free? That's the right question. It's the only question we've got left when we mourn genuinely from the heart. Here's what Wangren says again. All else has failed in death. Everything of self was proven useless through grief. One name alone endures. And it's now not merely a doctrine. It is experience. It is with genuine joy that I shout out loud with Paul, Romans 7.25, Thanks be to God Through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You don't get to say that and feel it as experience, not just doctrine, unless you have first, by morning, been drawn to cry out, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Only then will Jesus comfort you with the gift of his goodness. Only then will you hear the gospel's promise to you that when you're with Jesus, you are not who you were. The promise of the gospel is that Christ has come to us because we had no other options. Because our sin against God demanded our lives. But that he came and absorbed the full cost that our sin imposed. He drank it down to the last drop in his body on the cross. And declared that it is finished. And now, alive again, he stands ready to receive. Stands ready to comfort. All those broken enough. Helpless enough to mourn over who they are, over what the world is, unless Christ be for them. He stands ready now. He'll receive you if you'll mourn towards Him in faith. Father, all of us need Your Spirit's power before we're ready and willing and able to see the full truth about our sin, of who we are on our own. Thank you for Jesus, who makes us other than what we are. Comfort us, we pray. We're waiting for your comfort. Comfort us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.